Welcome to another inspirational message from the chapel. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information, check out our website, thechapelcollective.com.au. Good morning. We are working our way through the book of Acts, which really excites me because Acts tells us the story of how our Christian faith as we know it came into existence. It tells us how God gave us his Holy Spirit to forever change our ability to relate to him and how we are called to relate to a world that would silence God's message of hope and salvation. Today we're going to work through Acts 6 and 7, which primarily centres around a man called Stephen. We also get an early look at church administration and we're introduced to someone called Saul, who would later be known as Paul. But first, as we read these early chapters of Acts, let's remember that the term Christian doesn't even exist yet in the book of Acts. The term Christian doesn't get a mention until Acts 11. So these early Christians still see themselves as Jewish, only they're a new, complete form of Jew. They're still living under all the Jewish teachings at this point, only they recognise that Jesus is the final piece that all the law and the prophets have been building towards. They're not trying to undo or deny any of the Old Testament. Rather, they're reiterating what Jesus himself said, that he was the culmination and fulfilment of all that came before, and it's on that foundation that the Christian faith is built. And the book of Acts shows us how this beginning develops and Christianity then emerges as its own fully-fledged faith system. And it's here in chapter 6 that we see some of the first evidences of church administration. But before we dive in, I just want to take a moment to honour all the administrators in this church. It's the administrators here who keep this place and every church for that matter running and none of what we at the chapel or any church do would happen without administrators, so thank you. The early church realised this too. Up until this point, the 12 apostles had been leading the entire movement. But we open on chapter 6 and in verse 1, we're told that as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. We're told that division starts to form between the Greek-speaking and the Hebrew-speaking believers and they start to argue with each other, particularly over the treatment of widows and the division of food. And management of this conflict starts to distract the 12 apostles from their main task of preaching the gospel. We can be a bit like this too, can't we? How many times do we get hung up on the peripheral issues of church life, whether within our denomination or between denominations? How often do we allow ourselves to get so outraged about the temporal issues that we lose our perspective and lose sight of the really important issues? Do we sometimes care more about the position and volume of the speakers during worship than the position of people's heart? Do we get more outraged about receiving a lukewarm coffee than the state of our own lukewarm hearts? So can we keep our eyes firmly fixed on Christ and recognise that as the body of Christ, we're all different parts and while we might not always agree on these temporal issues, we can celebrate that in our diversity, we've all got different running styles, but we're all running in the same direction and towards the same goal. The 12 apostles thankfully did realise this and here enter our first official administrators. In the wake of these disagreements, seven godly, spirit-filled men were appointed to take responsibility for the administrative running of the church and division of the food amongst the widows. And Stephen is one of these seven. We'll come back to him shortly. But first, I want to take a moment to talk about the importance of delegation. If God's hand is on something that you're doing and you're experiencing growth in your ministry or project, you will eventually need to delegate. But to delegate effectively you need to be willing to let go of some responsibility and not micromanage, but rather release people into their God-given calling. 
The example was set thousands of years earlier by Moses as he led the Israelites out of Egypt. And Moses is leading this huge collection of people and trying to single-handedly manage all their issues when his father-in-law Jethro comes to him with some sage advice. He says in Exodus 18, what you are doing is not good. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen to me now and I will give you some advice. Select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Now, I mention Moses because he's actually going to feature quite a few times in this portion of Acts, so keep Moses in the back of your mind as we move forward. But once the seven administrators were appointed, we're told that God's message continued to spread, and then the number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many Jewish priests were converted. Sometimes we can hold on to our ministry or our projects with such a tight hand that we're stunting the potential for growth. When God gives us a vision or a project, we can see it as our own personal baby and forget that it's actually God's baby. And sometimes it's only once we let other people in, let other people combine their God-given vision with our God-given vision, that we can really see our projects reach their full potential. So here enters Stephen as one of these seven leaders or administrators in the early church. Stephen was a Greek-Jewish Christian, say that ten times fast. His Greek name Stephanos means crown, which is fitting as he goes on to earn a crown of glory. The name Stephanos will actually become synonymous with a God-given crown of glory. We see it in Revelations 2 verse 10. It says, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the Stephanos or crown of life. Stephen goes on to become the first Christian martyr, though many follow his example. And there's only a very short account of him in scripture, but his impact on the developing Christian faith is profound. We're told that Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, but they could not stand up against the wisdom that the Spirit gave him as he spoke. The Sanhedrin, or the Jewish Council of Elders, are outraged by Stephen's ministry. But they can't out-argue him. They can't out-reason him. Their arguments can't stand up against his wisdom. So instead, they stoop to the lowest level possible and persuade people to lie about Stephen, to bring false witness against him. They persuade people to lie and say that Stephen has blasphemed against the law of Moses. Now, remember, I said Moses was going to get another mention. We're not done with him yet. But the upshot of all of this is that Stephen is arrested and hauled before the Sanhedrin, the high council. And Stephen gives this speech through chapter 7. In response to the accusations brought against him, Stephen goes on and gives this history of the patriarchs. He gives like an abridged Genesis and Exodus. And this is where Moses comes back in. The main accusation, the false witness that's brought against Stephen, their main accusation, though it's a lie, is that Stephen has blasphemed and spoken against Moses and the law. So in response, Stephen gives a full account of Moses and the law. He gives a full account of the Jewish basis of faith right up to King Solomon with a particularly long and accurate account of the teaching of Moses. He cross-references Deuteronomy. He cross-references Isaiah and the minor prophets such as Amos. He says in Acts 7, You are a stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? You have received the law that was given through the angels, but you've not obeyed it. And Stephen goes on and explains to them how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He lays out how Jesus did not come to replace the law, but to fulfill it. Stephen was accused of overthrowing the writings of Moses, the cardinal texts of the Jewish faith. So therefore to quote Moses back at them becomes so much more significant and he turns their arguments on their head. 
They've come at him with Moses and Stephen's response is something along the lines of, Moses, you want to fight me about Moses? Don't you know Moses is my special subject? Come on, I'm ready to go, let's rumble. And he sends their arguments right back in their face by quoting Moses right back at them. He quotes Exodus 32. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses. They are stiff-necked people. He quotes Deuteronomy 10. Moses says, circumcise your hearts and do not be stiff-necked any longer. So though the Sanhedrin have come against Stephen with lies, false witness, accusing him of blaspheming against Moses, Stephen is able to keep cool, stay calm, stand firm in his convictions and demonstrate himself to be more like Moses and them to be more like the wayward Israelites. And while this is going on, something very interesting happens. We're told that at this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. And once again, we get yet another Moses parallel. In Exodus 34, it says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant of the law in his hand, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. And once again, Stephen is shown to be more like Moses and the Sanhedrin are shown to be more like the wayward Israelites. Now, I would go on and say spoiler alert here, but you've had 2,000 years to find out how this story ends. In Acts 7, it says, The Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation. They shook their fists at him in rage. They put their hands over their ears and began shouting. They rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Stephen, on the one hand, remains calm, composed. The Jewish leaders, however, turn into an angry mob. We know that they've become a mob by their reaction. Under the law laid out in Deuteronomy 13, stoning was the punishment for blasphemy. But the Roman Empire had taken away the Jewish right to execute people, and we see this in the execution and crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus is brought to the Roman officials to crucify him because the Jewish people can't legally do it themselves. But the Jewish leaders are so enraged by Stephen that they lose all sense of legal action and drag him out of the city to stone him to death. Can you just imagine them foaming at the mouth and screaming in rage? And their uncontrolled rage in this instance makes Stephen's godly response all the more remarkable. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. An angry mob is about to stone him to death, but he never loses his composure. Instead of looking out at the angry men, he chooses to look up at his God. Stephen is the living embodiment of Psalm 118 verse 6 that says, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that he died. Stephen was prepared to live out what Jesus said in John 15. If the world hates you, remember it hated me first. Since they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. He was the embodiment of the words not yet written in 1 Peter 4. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit and the glory of God rests on you. But we're not about to be stoned to death, are we? So how does any of this relate to us? Now, some of you might be familiar with a guy who, this guy, He's been in the news a bit over the last few weeks, but for those of you who haven't been keeping up with the news, his name is Andrew Thorburn. He's a strong Christian and he's on the board of City on a Hill Church down in Melbourne. We actually visited that church when we lived in Melbourne. He was recently elected CEO of Essendon Football Club, and it must be a big story if I'm paying attention to football news. This is a brilliant example of a strong Christian shining their light in the secular workplace, right? Apparently not. Andrew Thorburn was forced to step down as Essendon CEO one day into his role because of his association with City on a Hill Church. His demotion had nothing to do with anything he had said personally, 
No thoughtless social media post. It was purely due to his association with the church and comments that were made in a sermon from that church in 2013. In their statement, in, their, in the Essendon Club statement, they, the football club said, the board made clear that despite these not being the views that Andrew Thorburn has expressed personally and that were also made prior to him taking up his role as chairman, he couldn't continue to serve in his dual roles at the Essendon Football Club and as chairman on, at City on a Hill. There's been heated debate on both sides of the argument right up to senior politicians weighing in. There's been wide media coverage of it. The Age gave this comment. It seems that faith is not only unacceptable, but now must be cancelled. Now, I feel like each time I've stood up here and preached over the last six months, I've made some mention to the fact that Christianity on a whole is declining in Australian culture and that there's waning acceptance specifically of Christian over any other faith form. And each time I've stood up here and said that, I've been very careful to caveat that statement and make a, uh, really stress the point that we as Christians in the developed world are not persecuted, and I, and I stick to my guns on that. Um, I wouldn't dishonour the Christians in the world who actually are persecuted because of their faith. But this recent move, this recent move by Essendon Football Club, actually sets a really unparalleled precedent in our culture. Up until now, the greatest cost of our faith might be awkward conversations or people giving us labels or people judging us. It's never cost us much more than that. And while our lives aren't at stake, this case sets a real precedent where someone's faith has cost them their livelihood. Are we prepared for what's next? Are we prepared to stand firm in our faith? In a world that is increasingly intolerant of our faith, how should we respond? Like Stephen, we should look up, not out. Don't look out look up. When people come against us with slander and intolerance, how should we respond? Don't look out, look up. When people bear false witness against us, how should we respond? Don't look out, look up. We follow the example of Stephen, who right to the last remained gracious, who did not harbour bitterness or resentment to his accusers, but rather extended grace and forgiveness to them. In the midst of being stoned to death, he continued to look up instead of out. More practically, I would suggest three responses when people slander and malign us for our faith. Response number one, keep grace and forgiveness because when we hold bitterness and resentment in our heart, it weighs us down. But keeping a soft, gracious heart keeps us free. John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Response number two, be prepared to answer the naysayers. 1 Peter three fifteen says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And response number three, be firm in your convictions. Know what you believe and why you believe it and stick to that. Ephesians 6.13 says, therefore take up the whole armour of God so that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So keep grace and forgiveness, be prepared to answer the naysayers and be firm in your convictions. Now, I can't finish this portion of scripture without a brief mention of Saul. Those who were stoning Stephen laid their coats at the feet of Saul, who approved of their killing of Stephen. And when you look at the initial translations, the word approval implies that he actually took some pleasure in approving of the death of Stephen. He took pleasure in Stephen being stoned to death and in watching that. Yet even this man, God had the grace to redeem, to change Saul to Paul, who would go on to pen the bulk of the New Testament. 
So if Stephen could have grace for his opposers, if Jesus could have grace for those who crucified him, if God can have grace for Saul and redeem him as Paul, how much more can we have grace for those who come against us? Remember, it was the very same Saul who became Paul who penned the words in Romans 12, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. How we as the church keep grace, courage and conviction over the next decade is going to have a profound impact in our society. Now, we tend to have the expectation that people are standing with a stone ready to throw. But what if, just what if when we talk, they're not standing with a stone, they're standing with a notebook? Either way, church, don't look out, look up. Morning, everybody. It's good to see you all. Good to see someone uh, here. There's a bunch of people who are at conference with us and many of them probably resting. And uh, how weird is COVID? Did you forget about COVID life? They, um, I was at a reception last night, one year after the wedding day in Bellingen, some, some of the young guys from our church. And um, I thought, what a strange world. I'd forgotten already just how strange it was. And so it's good to be here. I haven't been here for a few weeks, as you probably know if you've been here. And um, uh, we're on holidays for a week in uh, New Zealand. And, uh, and then we had our state conference. So it's good to be home and good to be here. We're in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 6 uh, at the movies in the next service, if you've got nothing on today. And those of you who are of my vintage, it's called Prime. Um, those of you who are, Rocky 3 today, Rocky 3 in the 10 a.m. service. It's completely biblical. You didn't know that, did you? Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Let me read just the first seven verses. These seven verses here have profoundly shaped, I don't know that they've profoundly shaped my life, but they've profoundly shaped the way I lead. Maybe almost more than any text in Scripture so given we're there, I, I want to spend a moment here today because I think can help you and help us as a church. It says, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And just to pause there, it's a good reminder reading Acts chapter 6. We have sometimes this utopian view, don't we, of, or maybe you don't, when I was young, I had this utopian view of the church in Acts. But we don't get very far into the story and people are hungry because they're not getting looked after and people are complaining because of what tribe they're from. We're doing pretty good. Verse 2, the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Let's just pause there again. Imagine a leader saying, it would not be appropriate for me to neglect the preaching of the word and prayer to go look after that person. How would you be with that if I said that today? It's, it's good to get perspective because they're not trying to get out of stuff here. They're trying to get on with things that affect the kingdom of God. It's just interesting to me anyway. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word while we wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, we will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the group. They chose Stephen, we just read about, man full of the Holy Spirit, gives the other names, these men, 
And uh, if you're worried how well you'll be remembered in history, about as well as I just remembered them, skip by the names, go to the next verse. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And verse 7 says, So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a great number of priests became obedient to the faith. If you're wired like me, when you see the problem in verse 1 and revival in verse 7, you want to know what went on in between. And, you know, so looking at this, it was pretty simple. In verse 1, they've got a problem just trying to keep up with this incredible thing that God has done. And in verse 7, the gospel's going forward again and there's people coming to faith in Christ. And so what happened in between? Well, they found seven men to oversee the distribution of food to the widows. And if you've been in an envir- like a leadership environment with me, that you'll know that we've talked about building capacity lots of times. In fact, as I was prepping this, I was thinking, this will be like the 15th time Trish has heard this message in her life. They are still awesome, thanks. They are. But there's a problem and then there's revival and the fix in between, the, they found seven people who would become the capacity so that God could get on with what he was doing in and through the church. And so there's incredible potential in capacity. It's, it's, uh, I would say since we had a church about this size, I got an idea about capacity. And from there to then, that would have been about 2007 till now. For 15 years, we've subtly in the background, relentlessly tried to build it into our church so that we can position it for whatever God's doing next. And of course, it's been a good story. And, you know, I know that my role outside of here doesn't have a lot of bearing on here. But, you know, even there, we would have plant, planted 80 churches in, the, in that tenure. It's, God just continues when we build capacity in God does what only he can do and so thinking about that in 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 Exodus I just want to detour and come back to this because you'll get the idea in Exodus 23 verse 31 God talks to his people and he says I'm going to set the boundaries of your land at the Red Sea and to the desert and I'm going to deliver the inhabitants into the land uh, into your hands I'm going to drive them out before you I'm going to give you the promised land he gives them this incredible promise But in the verses before it, immediately before it, he says, I'm not going to drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will take, you will take, you, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. And so again, we see this idea. God says, I've given you this great future, this great God-given promise. And I want you to know it's going to come to pass little by little as you can handle it. And, and, and I don't know about you, I don't love little by little, but it's how life works. And, and little by little, and, and he gives a reason why, as you can handle it. And I, I do love that. I love that God says, I care too much for my people to let them be overwhelmed by the land. I care too much for my people to burn them out. And I care too much for my people for people to fall through the cracks. And I think what we see in Exodus 23 is what we get in Acts 6. God's saying, I want to give you the future and I want to bring people the faith in Christ, but it's got to happen little by little or faster and faster as you build in the capacity to handle it because God doesn't want us overwhelmed in a way that takes us out and he doesn't want people to fall through the cracks because the church, it wasn't that the church didn't care, it was just that the church didn't have the capacity to handle what God was up to and it looked like we didn't care at all. And so in Acts 6 we get that and so capacity I think is a deeply spiritual thing in the hands of God. 
And, and the message is clear. As they build capacity in, God would move again. So I just want to point you to that again today and give you three thoughts in the few moments that we have. Number, number one is just the importance of being the capacity, like you and me being the capacity. And I thank God for, I look around this room and you think, why preach this sermon? So many people are already the capacity. Wayne was here when I arrived at 7.10 or what it was, whatever it was, and he's pulling down the chairs. He's getting us ready for the day. I can't believe that Die Case is here. We put a shout out to, for people to volunteer at our state conference and um, Die Case volunteered. Like they, they're massive days. I don't know what they were, 14 hours a day probably. Over the course of the week, here she is this morning. Don't know how she quite does that. She might fall asleep. If Die falls asleep, we'll let her fall asleep and stay there this morning. But just determining her life to be the capacity. People working, you know, you get the idea. Just be the capacity. And what we see in Acts 6 is they build capacity. And not only do they fill a gap and fix a thing, but they actually build something in they never saw coming, which was a God-appointed future. And yeah, So here's a question, even in your own life, that I ask myself periodically. If I build capacity, what capacity do I need to build in now for what God might be looking to do one, three, five years from now? And I've asked that question a zillion times over a bunch of years. And in your life too, and for us as a church, what's the capacity we need to build in now that positions us for what God would be doing next? I'll give you an example. Right now, right across this year, so you know, we talked about we want to make sure that we are uh, a gospel-equipped church or language like that. So I know you don't know it, and we've done series and we've done topical preaching on it, but in the background, we've been having our pastors meet with a Baptist church in um, Victoria that 10% of their church for the last 10 years are new converts to Christ. So every fortnightly, we all get on a Zoom and we walk through that process. And next year, we'll take that church-wide for everyone who's interested. And it's a long-term commitment for us being a gospel-orientated church in a world that desperately needs Jesus. And so always building capacity in. Think about your life. Think about us as a church. What do you need to build in now if God were to turn up just doing what only he can do. And so I, I just want to encourage us, thank everybody who does be the capacity. Eric is over there on the coffee stand today. And, you know, do we need coffee at church? No. Well, yes. Um, but do we? Of course not. But what does why do we have coffee? The reason we have coffee is that people might hang around and have a God conversation. And so... How can you, if you're not, be the capacity? And those of you who already are, well done, good and faithful servants. And uh, we appreciate everything you do as a church. You're building in capacity. But we can build in more capacity for what God's doing next. I'm not asking people to exhaust themselves in the service of God so that they wake up Monday and give their business where they work the dregs. Not at all. They're quite the opposite. We think that going into Monday, you and I should bring our very best to the places where we work and function and all that kind of thing. But all of us can bring something. All of us have something to bring, don't we? None of us have everything. Thank God for that. All of us need, we all need each other. I need you, you need me, we need each other. And as we build capacity into Jesus' church, as you be the capacity in Jesus' church, something miraculous, something only God can happen. My favourite story on all of this, I've got two. One is Linnea Barlow, when we were building this building, we. I had very little to do with building the building. We as a church, 
on the night before we launched, the back rooms that no one ever sees were a mess. And we'd run out of money. And Trish decided that we'd do it ourselves. Good idea. And so they were out there on the night before opening in a room that nobody would see, painting. And there's an image somewhere of Linnea, now Barlow, with a little blow heater against the wall at 10 p.m. at night trying to get the paint to dry. And she, that woman, bees the capacity, excuse the grammar. Being the capacity. I reckon God looks on and goes, I can trust that. I can use that. But my favourite story, my favourite story is simply this. There was a woman who came to our church for a bunch of years. She'd been out of church for more than a decade, grown up on the central coast in a church there. Things had gone on, walked away from God, living on the Gold Coast, moved back to a town nearby here, about an hour away, and eventually got so stirred in her spirit and convicted that she thought, I've got to go to church. She drove an hour to Tamworth. She walked into the building we're in next door in the PM service and she got nervous and went to turn around and leave and drive the hour back home. The greeter on the door, the service had already started, spotted her and yelled out and said, hey, come on in. She came back and she looked at him and she said, is your name Jason Fawkes? He went, yes, it is. The only Christian that woman knew in all of Tamworth just happened to be on the door on the night that she made the hour journey after years in a wilderness back to church. God has way more ability to miraculously bring the threads together than we ever grasp. But he needs people who will be the capacity so that he can trust his church with people far from God, hurt by church, just looking for a new church in a new town, whatever it is, just to be the capacity. So I just encourage you today, let's continue to be, let's step up to be. And then finally, my second song, my second thought is just to build the capacity, invite people along for the journey, unapologetically invite people along for the journey. It's good for them. It's good for, it's good for what Jesus is doing on the planet. It's good for what he's doing where we live. I think, honestly, I, I, I don't know if you're excited about giving towns great churches or not. I love the idea when I think about our church in Armada, uh, Armada, Armada, yeah, this morning, but, you know, Gunnedah or if you've ever been to Bendy Church, I'm like, is there a better little town church anywhere? Like, it's incredible. And I think there's more churches we've got to bring to towns that need them desperately. And us building capacity here allows us to release that there. And so let's continue to be it. Let's continue to build, other, build it, bring others along for it. And then the final thing it says there in the moment that I've got left, it says they chose seven men full of the Holy Spirit. And I just want to point us to that because I think if you're going to continually serve in the house of God or wherever you want to term it, being full of the Holy Spirit continually is vital. Now, we all ebb and flow up and down, drain and, you know, that's life. But, but to make a decision that I'm going to live and serve full of the Holy Spirit, that was a prerequisite for guys who were serving and leading the widows, that they were full of the Holy Spirit. And so I just want to encourage you and, and myself just to live full of the Holy Spirit. When we got into the pandemic, about four weeks in, if you said to me, was I full of the Holy Spirit? I would have said, yeah, of course. That's how I live. I pray, I read. I, uh. And I realized as time started to open up that actually I'd lost some of the edge that my spirit had lived with. And so I made some changes. When I go to hotels now, I don't know how that even sounds to you. When I'm traveling and I'm in a hotel, I turn it into a war room now. 
I have a little comment. Dan Urquhart's read it. It says, I don't watch TV. I don't use an iPad. I don't use technology except to watch live sport, Lord. And <laughs> true story, it does say that. And, and it's got to be live. And, um, and this is where I pray and this is where I worship. And, and it just, you know, there's so many horrendous stories in the last few years. And I just went, you know what? I'm going to turn this. I'm going, to, I'm going to actually live with an edge in the place where it's brought people down. And so your life too, you know, just going, hey, let's be people that are living full of the Holy Spirit, making room for God as we move about the rhythm of our day. You know, get in the car, pulled into a car park the other day, and I heard this weird voice in the car next to me. And then I thought, I know that voice. It was the Bible on audio. The woman was listening to, listening to the Bible on audio. And I thought, what a great way to get in the car. Instead of listening to the ABC, I have all my life, but they're so left, they're doing my head in. Instead of listening to the ABC, I'm going to fill my spirit with the Word of God. Just to live full of the Spirit, full of the Spirit as we move through life in Jesus' name. Amen? All right, amen. Thanks. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring your faith or a follower of Jesus, there's a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to thechapelcollective.com.au And thanks again for listening.